Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be gathered together as your children, your adopted ones who have surrendered to you in faith and repentance. We are so grateful that you even thought of us at all, never mind sacrificed your son the way you did on our behalf so that all of our sins can be forgotten because they're paid for. And for us who believe, we can relish in that thought and claim eternal life. Father, we ask right now, too, for special prayers for those in our congregation who are sick and struggling right now. It's a test in many ways for many people. We ask that you strengthen them, especially spiritually, in their heart, that you give them confidence, that you have everything under control. And Father, most of all, we are grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that salvation is by grace through faith and not by our works. Otherwise, we would be hopeless. Please bless this message. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, eternal security, eternal assurance is the official title, Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled. And this is part four of this series. Uh, hopefully you remember uh, we covered this a few months ago, the first three parts, which I'll get to in a moment. I first want to thank Pastor Collins for the chance to uh, stand behind his pulpit and allowing me to finish this wonderful topic, which truly is just so encouraging and so uh, confidence-building. And he'll be back on Sunday morning, by the way, behind the pulpit. So first off, regarding this Eternal Assurance series, if you'd like to study parts one through three, uh, go on to nccdighton.org, our church website, and visit the pulpit page. And on the pulpit page, you can find the dates of February 23rd, February 27th, and March 12th. Those were parts one, two, and three of Eternal Assurance. So you can go revisit that, or if you never heard it, it's probably a really good thing to go over. We're not going to review a lot tonight from those first three parts. Um, I'm excited just to finish this up. And if you remember when we started this mini-series back in February, it was supposed to be only two parts. But try talking about eternal assurance in two parts, right? <laughs> that was my hope. That was my initial thought with what I had been given. And then the Spirit just kept adding to it and adding to it. So uh, it went from two parts to three parts, and now a fourth part that I didn't expect. So this might be the end of the series. We'll see. All right, so uh, we're going to start with a simple point, and this is the only review point, actually, from part three, regarding eternal assurance. Jesus purchased eternal life for us by his blood, and he has also given us eternal assurances of what's to come. So in other words, he didn't just leave it at that that he paid our price and that he gives us eternal life. He didn't just leave it there and give us no reassurance. He gives us a lot of reassurance in the scriptures if we're paying attention and if we're willing to dive into it. So we believers should confidently claim all the wonderful promises about the eternal life we have in Christ. We really should confidently claim these things. 
Now this comes to, to different degrees with different people at different places in this, their spiritual walk and, and how much they're into the Word of God. How confident you can be is based on how much you're into the Word and how much you believe the Word. And this type of confidence includes all the evidences of eternal life in the Bible for we believers. Things that the Bible says true believers possess. And that's where we've gotten to up to this point in the series, is what do true believers, what do those who are saved possess? And those things they possess are evidence of eternal security, eternal assurance. They're reasons that you should have assurance as a believer. So we're going to finish up a few key points from Pastor's blog. If you remember, he has a blog from um, a couple years ago called Assurance of Salvation is by Grace Through Faith. So we're going to finish up a few of those key points with the scriptures associated with them. And then we're going to close with a couple of different angles into the rose bush, so to speak. So we left off talking about that as true believers, we have an abiding love and eagerness for Christ that unbelievers do not have. All right, so if you're taking notes, that's kind of the point. Uh, we have an abiding love. Believers have an abiding love and eagerness for Christ that unbelievers don't have. And we're going to turn to several scriptures on this. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. These are ways that we know that God has changed our hearts. These are ways that we know that he saved us. Again, the point is we have an abiding love and eagerness for Christ that unbelievers do not have. In other words, if you're indifferent in your soul, in your heart, if you're indifferent towards the person of Christ, that's not a good sign. You might need to drop to your knees. But if you are a believer, a true believer will have some type of an abiding love and eagerness for Christ, caring about him and his uh, desires for them. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. So notice, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That speaks of, you know, Condemnation, right? Unbelief. Uh, the, the point being that the opposite is true. If you're a believer, you have some love for the Lord. None of us have a full love for the Lord. Otherwise, we'd be perfect. But to have no love for the Lord is a sign that you're under a curse. Go to Philippians 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, 20. I just love the title for the blog, you know calling it assurance and that's where this series got its name called eternal assurance because the blog says assurance of salvation is by grace through faith i just love the fact that god gives us reasons to be reassured philippians 3 20 and 21 but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice in verse 20, it says, we await a Savior. That's what believers do. They look forward to 
there's an eagerness that the Lord's coming back soon, thank God, right? That's a characteristic of a saved person. Go to 1 John 3, verse 1. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. So notice, believers have a certain love given to them by the Father. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Notice in verse 3, everyone who hopes in him. That's a characteristic of a believer. That's a reason that you should have assurance as well. Our next point from the blog is that as true believers, we are given spiritual discernment. We are given spiritual discernment from both the Word and the Spirit. I'll go first to 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. 1 Timothy 2:11. And this is an interesting point uh, that we're on right now. It came up a few months ago, if you remember, that we're given spiritual discernment. And we are supposed to test the spirits, for example, to see if they're from God. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The point is that believers can discern from the Word of God and the Spirit the divine order of things as well. And why do we accept this? Why should you accept this if you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever too? Because it's part of the Word of God, period. And we objectively know it's true because we trust the Lord and His reasons for everything. Go to 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. 1 Timothy 6.3. On that note, too, that's why um, women often have the gift of, of a teacher, and they're told to teach um, other women, they're told to teach children, but they're not told to be a pastor, for example, and have authority over a congregation that has men in it. 1 Timothy 6.3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. One other verse on our point here, again, regarding spiritual discernment, and you don't have to turn there, 
But it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything and hold fast what is good. Test everything. Whatever you come in contact with, could be in the church, out of the church. Test everything. See what the spirit, that spirit is coming from. Where's that spirit from? And hold fast to what is good. As we've been learning, overcome evil with good. This verse says, hold fast what is good. But test everything. And the Holy Spirit is with us. Don't think, oh, you know, me, oh, my, I'm not smart enough, or I'm not this, or I'm not that, or I'm too new with this. The apostles were all new at this, and the Holy Spirit gave them tremendous power and guidance and wisdom. Go to 2 Peter 3, verse 14. 2 Peter 3, 14. So again, we're talking about true believers receive spiritual discernment from the Lord. And that comes in two forms, from the Word and from the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 3.14 Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, in context, talking about the new heaven and the new earth, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. But again, to our point, if you're a true believer, you are given spiritual discernment. You can understand, understand the things that are difficult to understand. It might take some prayer. It might take some humbling before God and, and honestly wanting the answers. But we are given spiritual discernment. He gives grace to the humble. Go to 1 John 2.12. 1 John 2, verse 12. We'll see a couple passages in 1 John here about spiritual discernment that true believers are given. 1 John 2.12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Notice that phrase, you know him. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Remember, test everything, right? Test everything. Is what you're desiring or what you're looking at, etc., from the Father or from the world? Verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Again, we're talking about discernment and people's lifestyles, the things that we can see by people's fruit very often. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. So never doubt that the Holy Spirit is with you to give you guidance throughout your day. Go to 1 John 4, verse 1. 1 John 4, 1. You know, there's times, I'm sure you can all you know, relate to this, where the Holy Spirit will have something go off in your soul where you just know something's off or you know something's wrong in a situation or a person you're dealing with. And you might not even be able to explain it, but the Holy Spirit is faithful and he knocks on your conscience, right? He knows how to get your attention. So it's our job to listen. But he's faithful all the time. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, this... I have some people in my life I'm dealing with right now, too, with this. There are a lot of nice people you're going to meet that might not be from the Spirit of God, that might even be from the Spirit of the Kingdom of Darkness. That's, the Bible tells us that, right? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So be alert. Don't be like, oh, he's a great guy. He has to be from God. He gave me stuff. He was generous. He has to be from God. Test the spirits. Do not believe every spirit, verse 1, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. It's pretty simple. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our next point on the assurance of salvation is that as true believers, we are acutely aware of God's holiness and the presence and power of sin, and we are grateful for the God-given ability to confess and repent from it. All right, I'm going to repeat that in a moment, but as I do, turn to Romans 7, verse 14. Romans 7, 14. Again, as true believers, we are acutely aware of God's holiness and the presence and power of sin, and we are grateful for the God-given ability to confess and repent from it. If that's you, that's a good sign that you've been changed. Are you grateful for the God-given ability to confess and repent whenever you need to? Are you aware of God's holiness and the presence and power of sin? 
that which is against God? Believers have an inner desire to confess or agree with God and to be at peace with God. That's another way you know. What is the desire of your heart? I mean, you know, we all fail every day. What is your desire? That is a measuring stick or a sign of where your heart is at or who your heart is with. Look at Romans seven fourteen through 25. This is the Apostle Paul speaking with his struggle. But notice his desire. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself ser serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there we see the struggle, but we also see, hopefully you see the desire of Paul's heart to do the right thing, to please God, even though he kept failing and was distracted at times. Go to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Do you see it? Do you see that in you? For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Again, this is the heart of a true believer who is acutely aware of God's holiness and the presence and power of sin, but doesn't want that. Instead, wants to follow God and is grateful for the God-given ability to confess and repent of it whenever needed. So go to 1 John 1, chap uh, chapter 1, 1 John 1. This is just a great dissertation on this topic. Many of you are familiar with it, but don't be too familiar. 
1 John 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. But again, the believer rejoices in the fact that he can go to God and confess his sins, agree with God, turn around, follow him again, and, and rejoice in his mercy day by day. Believers have a desire to be right with God, despite their daily failures. And that is a reason to be assured of your salvation. And believers are also grateful for the privilege of repenting and confessing to a holy and loving Father. Who is he that even hears our confessions? Why does he want this intimate relationship with us? You know, when, when we sin, even as believers, let's say we're saved, right? When we sin, why doesn't he just give us all the discipline in the world at that time? Well, we know he's tremendously gracious and patient, and he's a holy and loving father. He gives us the privilege to come back to him when we've messed up for the 99th time. So that's the attitude we have as believers. We're grateful for that. We, we understand that. We appreciate that. We know him, as the Bible would say. And at times, gratitude just overwhelms us, if you're honest. Um, we should all know where we came from, all the gross sins that he forgave us of, and we rejoice for the gift of repentance. Our next point on the assurance of salvation uh, from Pastor's blog is that as true believers, as patterns of sin decrease, patterns of obedience increase. As patterns of sin decrease, patterns of obedience increase. Again, nobody's perfect, but there's this trajectory that you have as a believer. There's a direction you're going in. And it's towards following him a little bit more and more each day. So go to John 8.31 first. We're just going to go to a couple verses on this. John 8.31. Again, as patterns of sin decrease, patterns of obedience increase. We've spent a lot of time on obedience. And how that's a sign, that's a characteristic of a believer. John 8, 31. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Go to 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Again, look at verse 3. What does it say? Those who know him keep his commandments. We're not talking about perfectly. We're talking about habits. We're talking about desire of the heart. We're talking about lifestyle. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That should sound familiar. We spent some time recently on Matthew chapter 7, right? Where Jesus said, I never knew you to some that claimed to follow him but were practicing lawlessness. Again, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So next, moving right along, regarding assurance of salvation. As true believers, we love God and others with a love previously unknown to us. Turn to uh, John 13, 35. John 13, 35. We're going to see a few scriptures on this. this. This is, you know, this might be the characteristic of a believer that we love God and others with a love previously unknown to us. It's not all about you anymore. And you agree to that. You may not always live in it, always. But you agree to that. That's the desire of your heart. I know it's not about me. It's about him. It's about others. We love God and others with a love previously unknown to us. So that implies something supernatural, by the way. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Pretty straightforward. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. And in a moment, we're going to get to why this point is true. But first, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, 
For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's a personal relationship that the believer has with God. God teaches you to love one another. It's in you, the conscience, God using your conscience. God using the word of God. He teaches us directly. Go to uh, 1 John 2, verse 9. Back to 1 John. This is a very popular book regarding this subject. Um, if you want to just read a book about you know, personal assurance of salvation and what, what it looks like, read 1 John all the way through. Again, we love God and others with a love previously unknown to us. 1 John 2, verse 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. But again, in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Look at 1 John 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. By what? Loving in deed and truth, right? In verse 18. That's how you know you're of the truth and you can reassure your heart before him. So let's now note that John tells us not once but twice that it wasn't us who loved God first, but that God loved us first. And that and that alone is what got our attention and won our hearts. That we would then be able to love him back. If you think that you love God and you've always loved God, you know, almost like there's something good about you, you're mistaken because the word says you're mistaken. Go to 1 John 4, verse 10. 1 John 4, verse 10. This is all by the grace of God acting upon our lives. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And look at verse 19. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. God and God alone can give a man a new heart like this, overwhelmed by his pure grace and mercy toward us sinners. That's where his love comes from. It comes from him and him alone. 
And that's one way you know you've been changed, that you've been born again, that you have rightly surrendered to him and relinquished all credit for saving yourself, and you've trusted in Christ alone. So those are the final points from Pastor's blog on eternal assurance. And now we're going to get into a different angle of this rose, rose bush, so to speak. We're going to look at it from a different view on how or why we should have eternal assurance. So the following points and passages are just a short list of the promises given to those who are adopted by him. And we could do this for a long time. We could have this series go on for a month, honestly. But we're making different points and different verses to see the different ways to look at it and why we should have eternal assurance as believers. So what we're going to talk about right now is eternal assurances from Jesus. Eternal assurances from Jesus, from his own mouth. So first, let's turn to John 4, verse 13. John 4, 13. Not first John, but go back to the Gospel of John. John 4, 13. And again, these are all directly from the Lord's mouth, and they have promises about eternal security for believers. John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Notice Jesus said, the believer will never be thirsty again, speaking of spiritual thirst. Go to John 5:24. John 5:24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death to life. Notice that is in the past tense, my friends. The believer has already passed from death to life. One more reason to be Secure, based on the Lord's own words. Go to John 6.35. John 6.35. So put these things together, you know. If you, if you see that you have the characteristics that we talked about already of what a believer looks like, how a believer thinks, uh, priorities, desires, if you have those characteristics, then you can claim these promises from our Lord for yourself. You know, if you don't, that's another story. That's between you and God. But these are things that are meant to give you an unshakable security as a believer. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen, somebody? <laughs> it, should, it gives you chills. But this is the perfect Lord saying this to us. I will raise him up on the last day. Period. <laughs> no one can interrupt what he decides to do. John 6.51. Look at John 6.51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It doesn't say he might live forever. He will live forever. Go to John 8, uh, I'm sorry, John 6, 58. Same chapter, John 6, 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Go to John 10, verse 27. John 10, 27. Again, we're talking about eternal assurances directly from Jesus. Having a bad day? Go read these verses. And thank God for mercy. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. Go to John eleven twenty five. John eleven twenty five. Don't don't forget the Lord is omnipotent. No one's as powerful as he. He's he, his will cannot be broken if he desires it to be done. John eleven twenty five and twenty six. Jesus said to her, "I am." the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So there we have some reassurances directly from the mouth of our Lord. What we're going to close with is eternal assurances of resurrection, of the resurrection of believers. And don't get me wrong, unbelievers are also going to be resurrected, but we're talking about the good resurrection here. The Bible says there, there are eternal assurances. It gives us assurances of resurrection to heaven to be with our Lord. So we're going to start in the Old Testament first in Psalm 37, verse 28. Psalm 37:28. So now we're looking at a different angle into the rose bush, a different view of eternal assurance and why we should have it. Eternal assurances of resurrection for believers. Psalm 37:28 and 29. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. 
The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. We should have like a giant period at the end of these verses, huh? Period. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Period. Go to John 5.25. John 5.25. So again, we're going to go through a list. You can write down the scriptures if you want. Go home and dwell on them and pray on them. A list of scriptures about eternal assurances of resurrection for the believers. John 5, 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. But notice how dogmatically and plainly he states it. Those who are in the tombs are going to hear and are going to come out one day. And thankfully, that includes us, unless we face the rapture, which would be great. But anyway, we're promised this resurrection from the dead. Uh, we've already seen John 6, 39 through 40, but go to John 6, verse 44. John 6, 44. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Period. I will raise him up on the last day. Go to Acts 17, verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. Thank God for all these promises. I don't know what people do with, when they think life ends when you die and that's it. And there's absolutely no hope for anything else. Acts 17.30 The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You should be assured as a believer because of the raising of Christ from the dead. Go to Romans 8.11. Romans 8.11. The more we know these truths and these promises, the more we can walk around in this world and not be bothered by the things that we allow to get at us when we shouldn't. We have resurrection life. And the Bible says we already have it. Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here's a question to think about. If believers could lose their salvation, 
then why would they be promised to be raised from the dead like Jesus? If it was possible for a true believer, someone who surrendered, to, you know, you know the story. You know what it looks like now. If a true believer could lose their salvation, then why would they be promised to be raised from the dead like Jesus? Why wouldn't it say, maybe you will, or most will be raised? Again, our Lord does not lie. Romans eight twenty nine through 30. Go to Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's heavenly body stuff, everybody. And it says we're already glorified in God's eyes. It's already done. So again, we're talking about eternal assurance of resurrection. Uh, go to uh, 1 Corinthians 6.14. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 6.14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Any questions? God raised the Lord from the grave, we know that, and he will also raise us up by his power. So I'm going to give you a list of a few more scriptures that you can look at on your own if you want, because the Spirit wants us to end a certain way tonight. But regarding eternal assurances of resurrection for believers... You can also go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Colossians 3, 3 through 4, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, and Jude 24 and 25. And all these points, like that would have been on the board tonight if this was working, but all these points will be on the website. So if you want to go back and look up the scriptures on the website, you'll see the main, the main points there. So, for now, we're going to skip ahead here because the Spirit wants us to end a certain way by His grace. What does assurance look like? And what should it look like in, in we believers? We're talking about assurances right now from resurrection. And when the Lord was on earth, He said the one sign He would give to the doubting generation of His day was the sign of Jonah. So go, go to Matthew 12, 38. As we begin to close, Matthew 12, 38. The Lord said there's one sign he would give the people, even though they, they wouldn't listen to him, basically. They, they kept seeing and not believing. And it was a doubting generation, but he did say, I'll give this one sign to you. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So there we see the promise of the Lord's resurrection. And we know obviously that happened just a short time after he prophesied that. So Jonah was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ with the wonderful promise and proof that we have in the Lord's resurrection from the grave, right? Jonah came out of the fish's belly, should have been dead, came out alive out of the fish, and went and preached to Nineveh. The Lord came out of the grave three days later as a type of Jonah. Jonah was a type of the Lord. But Jonah was a type of the Lord in another way too. Um, turn to Jonah in your Old Testament. Go to Jonah chapter 1. Verse 4. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. I'll give you a minute. But we're going to end with talking about the believer's assurance. What does it look like? We've already seen a lot of that. But what else does it look like? Jonah 1, verse 4. Jeopardy music going in my head. Jonah 1.4 But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Jonah 1 verse 4. Wow, we haven't been here in a while, huh? Jonah 1 verse 4 But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Does that sound like someone you know? With emphasis on the word no? You know the Lord. You know that he was sleeping on the bow of the ship during the storm when the apostles were freaking out. So in this way, Jonah was also a type of the Lord. There we have supernatural assurance granted to the believer in the Lord. Jonah was a true believer. He was at this time disobeying God, but he knew God. He knew his power. He knew his faithfulness. He knew all about him. And he was asleep under, underneath the ship. We have supernatural assurance given to us by the Lord. He gives us the ability to be at rest in the storms of life. Not that we always are perfect at this, or that we're always this way, but we get more and more of it as we grow. The more we grow in His grace and knowledge, the more we see glimpses of His supernatural peace in us and the ability to transcend our circumstances and not even be touched by the enemies of the world. So we're going to go to one last verse. First, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 12. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. We're talking about the believer's assurance. Something granted him because he knows the Lord. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, part B. Paul said, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, what has been entrusted to me. Is that your attitude, at least to some degree? I am not ashamed, for I know what I, uh, in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The confidence that we should have is another sign that we know him and belong to him. So regarding the believer's assurance, may we rest assured. May we live like that every day in a calm assurance of these amazing truths and promises that we've looked at. Knowing that we're in union with Christ forever and nothing can break that because no one can snatch you out of his hand. So in closing, as Jesus said in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. That was the title to this series, wasn't it? Eternal Assurance, Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled. So may we always go back to this and not let the lies, the, the whispers, the sin nature, you know, the devil, persuade us against the faithfulness of God and that His will is going to be done one day. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your tremendous faithfulness we thank you that you're perfect that no one can thwart your plans or your will or your faithfulness towards those who believe in your precious son father we ask that you give us and grant us this assurance more and more in our heart based on your holy word and based on your holy spirit we ask that you give us an unshakable attitude as we walk through the devil's world knowing we are yours. We ask that you bless us all as we go, Father, and help us bring this good news out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you.